A reading from Peter's first letter. Rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice, and all guile, and sincerity, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel, before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, They returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the gospel of the Lord. 
Let's uh, pray together. Father, this uh, first day of Christmas, we give you thanks for the birth of Jesus, and we remember that our consolation is found in him, and we pray that as we think about this story out of Luke's gospel, that we would understand how we might uh, draw encouragement for the lives that you call us to live and lead uh, in our day, in our time, in our moment, in our stories. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're, uh, we're seven days into the season of Christmas, right, uh, in, in the way Christians around the world celebrate uh, Christmas for 12 days. And one of the reasons we do this, I think, is that we, we recognize that uh, this story of Jesus is of such profound importance and power and greatness that whatever circumstance of life you feel like you're in, it's, it's good to sort of hit pause and just reflect that the future that God is bringing because of Jesus is so much greater than either our joys that we're experiencing in this present moment, because we've had some of them this week. You've had moments where you've thought, this is so good. You've reconnected with family. You've, you know, you've, you've, uh, you've exchanged gifts. You've celebrated. You've had good food and whatnot. You know, all these joyful things that we encounter in this season, but also, right, Hard things, sorrowful things, because often when we get together with family, it's the good and the bad. It's the, it's the, it's the joyful and the painful. But, and so we're never far from recognizing that whatever joys we have, they're just sadly incomplete, right? They're, they're not the fullness of what is to come. And so in this Christmas season, we just very, very intentionally sort of hit pause and we say, this story of Christ, right, is my anchor. This, this is my compass. This is the story that will be and is my consolation both now and forever. And so we're doing that this morning uh, in our time of worship as we continue to sing songs of Christmas and pray these prayers and now read this story of, out of Luke's story of Jesus' life, um, a story that includes these two figures, Simeon and Anna. And... Um, so as we think about this, uh, this is a moment when Mary and Joseph have brought Jesus to the temple uh, to be circumcised, which uh, is nothing remarkable in one sense. They're, they're just doing ordinary faithful stuff. Now let's think about this particular text, and there are a few things I'd like to draw attention to this morning. The first are the, just the characters, right? Uh, Mary, Joseph, Simeon, and Anna. And I, I just mentioned that Mary and Joseph are, are, are simply doing what ordinary Jewish parents did. Uh, if they took God's word seriously, if they read his word or they heard his word proclaimed and spoken of, they heard the law, they just began to adapt their lives to the pattern of life that God says is ordinary for Christian people uh, or for believing people in that moment, right? And so for them, that meant simply this, that they would take their son, their firstborn son, and they would have him circumcised on the eighth day in the temple. Um, and it meant that Mary would offer, they would offer sacrifices for Mary's purification following childbirth. In other words, there's nothing um, remarkable about what they're doing. They're, they're just doing an ordinary act of faith what God requires of them, what he says he wants for their lives. And it's a way of expressing faith, we could also say, right? Because they're taking God at his word, right? So they're doing this. They show up in the, in the temple. Um, and, uh, you know, as they do this ordinary thing, they encounter, right, Simeon and Anna, right? Now, I just want you to imagine if we're, like, next Sunday, 
we'll be doing baptisms here at, at City Church. And, and so uh, if, if, let's just say some parents have brought their children or their child for baptism, and they're just, you're just doing what we do, right? We dedicate our children in, in a, this sacrament of baptism. And let's say we're up here, and, and we're beginning to enter that moment, and these two elderly figures rise up that you don't know, you've never seen them in your life, and they just show up, and they wander onto the stage, and they begin to say these sort of, odd things, right? That would be really weird. That's the kind of context you've just walked into in this story of Simeon and Anna, right? They're, they're, they're there in the temple, they're, and, they're, and they begin to offer these prophetic words in this particular moment when Mary and Joseph are doing nothing remarkable at all. They're just doing the habits of their faithful life, right? And yet it becomes a context in which they receive something from God that's quite remarkable. And that would be true for us as well, as we engage ordinary habits of faith. Now, Simeon and Anna, who are they? Well, they're old. Um, so these are two very old people. Uh, we don't know exactly how old Simeon is, is, but it would seem that he's old enough at least to die, right? And so he, he, uh, he, he has been told in his life by the Holy Spirit that he would... Um, that he would live until he saw the Messiah, that he saw the consolation of Israel. In other words, the one in whom all of God's promises would come true, right, and begin to take effect, right? The, the, the king, the coming king of Israel, uh, he had been promised by God that he would see this person uh, born. And he, so he's old enough at this point to at least say, ah, I can go in peace, because I've seen the consolation of Israel. And Anna's old as well. You know, you're reading the, the text here, and it could lead you to believe that she's like 84 years old, but some commentators think that actually she was 84 years a widow. And so that would mean that she's something like 105 years old, if that's the case. Because if you imagine that she married at 14, and then she was married for seven years, and her husband dies at 21. Now just put that in, the, in your frame of reference, right? This is a life that is lived with quite a bit of sorrow, and then never to remarry. And so here she is, a prophetess, right? Uh, and, and, and living in a faithful way toward God. And the thing I want you to think about both Simeon and Anna is just this. Like Mary and Joseph... They're only doing the ordinary acts of faith, praying and fasting, praying and fasting, and in Anna's case, prophesying, right? Speaking things that the Spirit would reveal to her, help her to understand, helping God's people understand the promises that God had given his community, right? That's what they're doing. Nothing remarkable about it at all. It's an ordinary sort of practice of faith. And yet, it's in these very ordinary spaces of just doing the kind of thing like you've done this morning, just showing up at church, right? Or, or when you would read the Bible, you know, at home, or when you would pray at home. They're just doing ordinary habits and practices that God's people have always done to sort of anchor their own imaginations, to cultivate their own desires for those things that God has said and those things God has promised, and they do these things in behalf of others. And here we have an occasion when God shows up in a remarkable way in that moment and gives uh, this word that Simeon speaks uh, to, uh, to all that will listen, perhaps, but also um, to, to God and also to, to Mary and to Joseph. So the second thing is think about the prophetic message itself. Right? It's a message of praise. 
And it's a message of warning, right? Let's just read it one more time. Master, now you are, you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation of the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. So let's think about that part for just a moment. Simeon, right, has been brought into the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ. We don't know how this happens. We know very little about that. But when he sets eyes upon Jesus... He is given this revelation, this discernment by God, that here he is. This is the one. And so Simeon can, in a very real sense, say, as he beholds Jesus, the glory of God, my wait is over. All that I've been waiting for is happening right here in this child who is now being presented in the temple. My wait is over. I can die now because my eyes have seen him I've set my eyes upon this Jesus. And then Simeon begins to tell something remarkable about Jesus, right? Not only is he the consolation of Israel, in other words, the king that was to come, but in some very real sense, Simeon begins to get a sense that the scope and the power of Jesus' life, right, it's not confined to Israel, to the, either the ethnic people of Israel or to the geographic bounds of, uh, boundaries of Israel, but rather that Jesus is a light for the whole world, so the story of who Jesus is and this little child, just imagine that. He's, he's observing this baby that has been born, right? This, this child, eight days old, and he's beholding him in such a way and discerns by an act of God's spirit that this is the one who is not only going to save Israel, but will save the world itself. His story is deeper and wider and has a scope that is far beyond anything that he himself perhaps had even understood of the prophetic word of God. And then to Mary, Simeon gives a very sober warning. This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And to Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Think about this for a moment. From the earliest days of Jesus' life, Simeon begins to discern that people will react to Jesus in one of two ways. That they'll either behold him and see him as one in whom and through whom they themselves can rise. Or they will behold him and see him as an obstacle to their own life. There are two ways of relating to Jesus, right? Either they will, some, some will embrace him and they'll follow him, they'll rise with him, or others will begin to view Jesus as an obstacle to the way they want to live life and they'll fall upon him. They'll struggle with Jesus, right? Uh, take a look at verse 35 again, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. I've been a Christian for, um, well, a long time, and... <laughs> And one of the things that I can say about that is that a life with Jesus always, always, always brings you into a space in which you're seen by him in a way that helps you see yourself more clearly too. There's something about Jesus and the way we relate to him, the way we think about his story as it unfolded historically about the way we relate to him among his people, the church who are filled with the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit of Christ. That there's a sense in which we find ourselves exposed, um, understood, known, discerned, seen, all the way through. 
And there's something really beautiful about that, and there's something very terrifying about that, because what? Most of us are what? We're masters of hiding our inner life, right? We're, we're masters at disguising the inner life, the inner thoughts that we live with day in and day out. We're much more prone to try to live with our secrets, to massage our secrets, to sort of massage our unsavory parts, or right, the parts of our lives that we'd rather not sort of foreground in any particular way. But one of the things that, that you know about following Jesus, if, you've, if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus or you've been around him for any length of time or around the church for a length of time, is that you begin to be known by God in such a way that you begin to know yourself more clearly than you previously could have known yourself. Simeon sees that Jesus will see us. He'll behold us. So here in this remarkable season when we're thinking about all the persons that are traveling to this nativity, right, to behold the child that is born, there's a sense in which Simeon is saying, Jesus will behold you too. Jesus will see you through and through, all the way down to the bottom. He beholds us. He sees us more deeply than we even see ourselves. We're seen through and through as Jesus gazes upon our lives in those moments of joy, that we've experienced in our moments of laughter, in our moments of play, in our moments of real delight at what it means to be a human and creativity, but also in the darkest moments, the spaces of fear or anxiety, our spaces of sin. He beholds us. He sees us. And here's the thing about Jesus. He never, ever, ever averts his gaze from you. You know, we're in relationship with lots and lots of people, and when persons disappoint us or we feel frustrated or frustrated with our own selves or we encounter someone with whom we disagree very deeply, our tendency is very often to avert our gaze or dismiss people. But Jesus never, ever, ever does that. He sees us all the way through, and he never averts his gaze. But through his gaze, he creates a context for us to rise in grace. Think about this through one of the encounters that the gospel writers give us. Um, the story of the rich young man, the rich young ruler, as he's sometimes called. This is a man who took very seriously things that God said, and we learn through his story and his encounter with Jesus that he obeyed the law, right? That he understood the law. He comes to Jesus and he wants to know, uh, really, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is not saying, hey, how can I be saved? It's not sort of the way we might use some of those, that language, but it's more or less he's simply asking this, how can I be certain, despite all the ways that I'm living life, how can I be absolutely certain that I belong to God's future? That the world that God promises, he's bringing that kingdom come when justice and beauty and goodness and truth will reign forever. How can I be sure that my life is a part of that world that God promises is coming? And Jesus interacts with him, and he asks him about the law, and the man says, hey, I've kept the law. I've, I've followed the things that I know to follow. I've done it. And then Jesus says, well, you lack one thing, and I absolutely love the way Mark puts this in his gospel rendering of this moment, because Mark says Jesus looked on him, or he beholds him, and he loves him. And he says, you lack one thing, so all that you have, give it to the poor and follow me. What is Jesus doing in that moment? He's exposing what's hidden. He's exposing something about this particular man's life that even he may not know or be very aware of. But in the gaze of Jesus, 
He is given the privilege of seeing his own broken life differently than before. And the question is, will you let your life, right? Well, to this man, is Jesus is saying, will you let your life, with your possessions in this case, will you let my love for you change the way you live in love? Will you let my love for you, my presence to you, the way I relate to you through my gaze, will you let it change the way you think about living your life in the world, the way you assemble your life, the way you put meaning together in your life, the way you imagine purpose for your life, or whatever. Will you let my love for you and my life with you change the way you live life in the broken world? And it's a very sad story because the man won't do it. So he goes away disappointed. In other words, he doesn't rise into Jesus' greatness, but he falls because of Jesus' greatness. How do you relate to what Jesus reveals to you about you. It just happens that for this man, his broken way of living life had to do with money and possessions and his achievement and his success in the world. But what is it for us? Maybe it is that. Maybe it's some idea you have about a career or vocation, or maybe it's sort of some idolatrous way of relating to your own sense of creativity, or maybe it's a way of living with your sexuality, or maybe it's a way of living with success and power, or maybe it's a way of the way you think about having a family and what you think an ideal and perfect family is, or maybe it's the way you think about your children and how, how great children are, or maybe it's just how, how do you sort of take up residence in your story brokenly? in a faulty way, in a way that doesn't actually lead you to wholeness, but leads you further and further and further into fragmentation and brokenness and destruction. Jesus looks on us so that we might rise in him regardless of our circumstances of life. So that if you're experiencing a place of joy, you don't sort of live with joy as if you're a self-made person. You connect the dots of that joy to Jesus who is gracious and loves you, who is who is the creator and who has put you in a set, a set of relationships that connects your life to opportunity and different things, right? You begin to not see yourself as a self-made person, but as someone who's completed only by Jesus. So even your joys and your laughter and your play aren't an end unto themselves and aren't self-created, but are connected to his grace in your life. And if you're in a place of sorrow or disappointment or distraction or whatever, you don't see that as the end story of your life, but you begin to see that he moves your life toward his world of justice and truth and beauty because he loves you. And you begin to let his love reorient you to your own life story, whatever it is, wherever you are. When you encounter Jesus, you either begin, right, to see how you've lived in your own way through your own attempts at consolation, or you begin to come to him as your consolation, as the one in whom your deepest longings for goodness and peace and wholeness can actually be realized as something real. You and I are either coming under God's way of consoling us to the story of who Jesus is, where we're living life on our own, trying to come up with our own consolation. This is a good place to finish up. Luke is telling this story very early on in the story of who Jesus is in his gospel. And I wonder if he's saying it just so that we, the reader, right, as you read the story, that you begin to just prep yourself 
that as you go through the story of Christ and you read about encounters like the encounter with the rich young man or his encounters with the Pharisees and religious ruler and sort of self-righteous people on the one hand or sinful people on the other hand as he sort of walked through Jesus' world and you see how he encountered them, how he related to all these people, that you and I would begin to live with a very open hand before God as we read these stories of Jesus. And we would encounter him wherever we are as persons that are open to hearing from him, to being seen by him, to letting his loving gaze over us create a context of grace in which we would rise and not fall. And one of the ways that you and I will know this is happening for us, I think, is that we will have this sort of posture in our lives that's just open. We're willing to be in a moment of the ordinary faithful practice and be surprised by God. I'm willing to see what he shows me. I'm willing to listen to what he has to say. I'm just open to him. And I'm not grasping at my own life and my own explanations of life, but I'm open for him, wanting to hear, what do you have for me to see today about my life in the world? And how might your love for me reshape the way I live with my own sorrows and joys and laughter and sadness? How does it change me? And am I doing the kinds of ordinary things in which that might happen? Things like Mary and Joseph were doing of just practicing faith in the rituals of the church life, right? The things we're doing this morning, gathering for worship or gathering in a community group or praying or reading the scripture, right? Ordinary things like Simeon and Anna were doing taking on a practice of fasting even perhaps, where you're acknowledging in your own practice of eating that you know what, there are hungry people in the world. And I'm longing for the consolation of Israel. I'm longing for God in these practices to come near my life. Will we do the kinds of things in the coming year that believing people have done century after century after century? that put them in a place where they hear the promises of God afresh and they remember them and they awaken their own affections for the things that God wants in his world and in our own lives. And the only reason we would ever do that is because you begin to hear his story as the true story. The story of the one through whom God is indeed consoling the world now and will bring it into its fullest place of consolation when Jesus returns. He loves us. He beholds us. He does not avert his gaze from us so that we might rise in him, in his greatness, in his power, through his love. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on this old story from the gospel, this old story about a baby who would live a life of goodness and love and perfection all the days of his life in every circumstance of relationship that he ever encountered. As we think on his story together and individually, would you help us to know that all of this happened because you love us? And would you help us to be open to him, to seeing what he sees and to rising with him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.